Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. Good evening. Today we're going to do something quite special. Now, we're gathered today as always, to discuss some of the subtlest and most profound ideas in human civilization, the very heights of spiritual philosophy. But as we know, the value of these ideas lies not in the intellectual subtlety that they contain. It's not about becoming a more charming dinner party guest or understanding a subtle philosophy to impress your friends with. It's not about learning a few Sanskrit words or a few words in Latin to appear more cultured. That's nice, but never will that scratch the itch. Never will that satisfy the hunger or quench the thirst that brought you here in the first place. One thing to note is that there is something in your experience that has always sort of nudged you forward. It's a voice that has appeared to you in many forms, but it always has the same tone and timbre and texture. And it's the voice that tells you to reach out for a particular book at the bookstore. It's the voice that tells you to zoom in to this or that lecture, to read this or that online article, to be with this or that person. And somehow or other, there's this voice. And often, we don't like to listen to it. Because often... It asks that we do things that are uncomfortable and unfamiliar. It's a voice that almost says to us, on the other side of your fear, there, beyond those known shores, lies the greatest adventure of your life, lies your destiny, lies your calling, if you were only bold enough to venture forth. And so some of us, and most of us here, daily answer that voice. We answer that voice by coming to the mat, by studying, by seeking out holy and enlivening company. We answer that call by looking inward and mustering up the courage for meditation. Make no mistake, there's nothing easy, although it is simple, there's nothing easy about sitting down, closing one's eyes, and attending to what goes on within. It takes tremendous courage. In fact, in South Asian culture, we often call meditators viras, you know, the path, vira marga, the path of the heroes and heroines. Vira means hero, marga means path. So meditation is indeed the vira marga. Why would someone do it? Why would someone sit there, close their eyes, and for an hour, twice a day, attend to their breath, send their thoughts towards an ideal form of the divine? What's, what's up with that? What's wrong with you? <laughs> Why do you all do this? As a meditator's joke, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> but to most of the world, this is inane. You know, most of the world is up and doing. They're building businesses and you know, forwarding a personal narrative or trying to one-up one another, trying to get ahead, so to speak, trying to accumulate wealth in the name of ambition. As we know in America, uh, greed has a new name. It's called ambition. Uh, trying to collect partners like possessions and acquisitions. Again, as we know in America, lust has a new name. We call it love. <laughs> but while the rest of the world is doing that, and in fact, being applauded for doing that, um, here you lot are, uh, listening to some fool on the internet, and sitting around doing nothing for literal hours every day. What's up with that? 
What's wrong with you? Again, we ask. And the reason you're doing that, perhaps, is because there is something in you, some voice, some feeling in your experience that draws you into it and causes you to seek out such philosophies. And so here we are. Now, if this call ended at intellectual consummation, we can all go home after a lecture and after a book. and Put the book down and be done with it. That's not really what we want, is it? There is some sense in which there is more to all of this than the ideas, that there's something to which each of these ideas point, and that thing is the thing most worth having. It's not something you can know in the mind. No amount of belief or conceptualization will adequately, adequately get at it. So the Buddha famously would say, do not config, uh, confuse the finger pointing to the moon with the moon itself. Doesn't matter if you believe that the moon is there. What you want is to look at it, to realize it, to experience it. Belief, concept, ideas, thoughts don't really have that much to do with it. So when it comes to realizing these ideas, that is living them out, embodying the scripture in each and every moment of life, when it comes to that, there is no better inquiry than an inquiry into the lives of the masters. And henceforth, we have today's lecture. Um, because the way the master easefully moves through life is the way that we ought to move through life. So when we look at great masters like Paramahansa Ramakrishna, Ramana Maharshi, the Buddha, Ananda Maima, we look at masters like the Christ, you know, or any such master, the way that they move through the world demonstrates their realization. So they, they live, they walk the talk, they live the scriptures, so to speak. And so their natural state is for us, our practices. So what we're trying to do is embody that, be that. And in some sense, to be the masters, we must first, dare I say it, imitate them. We must first look how they conducted their lives, understand the motivations and reasoning behind how it is they live their lives, and then seek to embody that in our own lives. So that's why it's with great delight that today we turn our attention to perhaps the most profound and powerful master known to us in our civilization, and that is um, the Christ, Jesus or Yeshua, um, who was a healer that perhaps lived in the Levant some 2,000 years ago. And he was known far and wide as a miracle worker. You know, he gave sight to the blind. He helped the crippled people walk. He cured leprosy. He exorcised those who were possessed. Profound psychologist, profound healer. You know, and he wandered this way and that, clad in simple linens, perhaps barefoot, if not clad in simple sandals, sleeping out under the open stars. And the simplicity with which he lived his life inspired the entire world inspired one Jew living in Rome so much that that Jew spent the rest of his life traveling this way and that, writing letters to everybody about the greatness of someone he had never met. Notice that Paul, the Jew, living in Rome, never met the Christ. He saw him in visions. And for some reason, that was more real to him than meeting any man in the world could have been. You know, Paul, in his visions, had such a direct experience of the life force, of the purity, of the simple truth of the Christ, that he lived the rest of his life to um, teach that message, to share it with everyone. Well, not just Jews, but everyone, everyone in the world, because he felt like it was the common property of all. 
Now, a while ago, Swami Vivekananda said his mission was to bring Vedanta from the mountains to the marketplace, from the forest to the cities, because he felt like the teachings of Vedanta, the uh, insights of India's scriptural heritage, were the common property of every man, woman, child, person, that the ideas of the Upanishads were to be understood by all so that the unlettered could escape the tyranny of the learned, so that the poor could escape the tyranny of the rich. If everybody understood themselves to be that self, that Atman, beyond all physicality and psychology, if everybody understood the grandeur of their own existence, then everyone, no matter what their socioeconomic circumstance, would feel empowered and would truly live a life according to the highest and most ennobling of ideals. And that, everyone deserves to have that. So when Vivekananda wandered all about the world, uh, he took with him two books. One of them was the Bhagavad Gita, of course. And you know, Vedanta students, all of you, you know that the Gita is kind of like the essence of the Upanishads. And for those of you who might be new to us, the Upanishads are, of course, the world's oldest extant spiritual tradition. They are the spiritual or philosophical insight of the Vedas which is the world's oldest extant spiritual literature. As you know, the majority of the Vedas is about ritual. It's a liturgy. It's about what to do, not really about why to do it, as we were discussing today. And a lot of that um, concerns itself with the performance of certain rites in order to win favors here on earth and in the hereafter. So to win wealth and pleasure both in, world, in the world and in various heavens. But the Upanishads um, challenge that. They say there's something a little more that you want beyond just pleasures in various heavens. You want something deeper. You want the truth. So the Upanishads are the portion of the Vedas concerned with just that, with the truth, with understanding um, the deepest things in life. Who are you? What are you? What is all of this? And why is all of this? What are you to do here? What is it to live a meaningful life? These are the questions that the Upanishads take up. So, you know, the Gita then, you know, they say if the Upanishads are like celestial cows, then Krishna, through his compassion and mercy, milked those cows to give us the Gita. So the Gita is like a tall glass of fortifying milk. Uh, for the vegans in the room, oat milk. Don't worry. <laughs> There's a vegan version of the Gita as well. <laughs> Krishna milked the oats. <laughs> so, of course, Swami Vivekananda had with him um, the Bhagavad Gita. He had it in his pocket, back pocket. But he also had another book, and this is particularly important. What do you think this other book was? I just open up the floor, you know, quiz for um, five million dollars. I don't know, <laughs> for double or nothing, you know. For, if only this was the Oprah Winfrey show, like you get a car and you get instead instead you get an Upanishad teaching and you get an Upanishad teaching. <laughs> um, yeah, what was the other book? Austin says Bible. No, not quite. What, what was the other book? What do you think? You can put it in the chat. You can unmute. So Swami, for 10 points, Swami Vivekananda, when he traveled the world and he walked around India, um, had with him only two books. The Bhagavad Gita, which we know is the essence of the Upanishads, and one other book, not quite the New Testament, something even more recent than that. Whoa. So what do you think he had? <laughs> Urban says, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. <laughs> Yes, actually, he had Fifty Shades of Grey, right? He had a little, little light reading while he was... No, it was not um, Think and Grow Rich. It was not the New Testament. It was, in fact, it was not the Quran, no. 
um, though he often would say India should have an Upanishadic um, mind and a Muslim body. He was very taken with the effectivity of Muslim law and rule, and, and you know he was a big lover of that. Uh, but not the Quran, not the New Testament. Swami Vivekananda, when he wandered about India and when he traveled all over to the UK and to the US, spreading the message of the Upanishads, the life-giving, fructifying, universal philosophies of the Upanishads, he had with him, besides the Gita, Thomas R. Kempis's The Imitation of Christ. So I'll put that in the chat, and it's one of the most powerful books in spiritual life. Um, Kempis is a place, so Thomas R. Kempis means Thomas of Kempis. Uh, and this is a kind of 15th century or 14th century text, I believe. And it's called The Imitation of Christ because the text opens with the following words. I'm paraphrasing heavily, but it opens with a quote from the New Testament. He who walks with me walks not in darkness. And it opens with this idea. To truly live a spiritual life, one must live like the Christ. What it means to be Christian is to follow the Christ, not simply believe that the Christ existed, not simply believe that the Christ will save you through mere belief alone, but to actually follow the Christ, to live like the man um, and embody in one's own life, I'm paraphrasing, the truth, simplicity, beauty, and devotion of the Christ. And so the book opens with, let us now turn our meditation... Let us turn our meditation now um, to the life of Christ. And the rest of the book is just a manual on spiritual life, uh, a manual on how to live according to those highest of spiritual values that the Christ embodied. Isn't that interesting? And Iswaran, a translator who would later publish a very popular version of the Upanishads that is quite popular here in America, he said it's, it's no surprise that Swami Vivekananda had with him both the Gita and Thomas R. Kempis's Imitation of Christ because uh, the imitation of Christ is very Upanishadic. Now, what does that mean? When we call something Upanishadic, we're not saying it's like the Upanishads. We're saying it echoes uh, the universal truths that the Upanishads were echoing. You see, these truths don't belong to Hinduism. They don't belong to Jainism or Buddhism or Islam or Christianity. They are universal spiritual truths that are common to all faiths and all true faiths when practiced with sincerity. Everyone will be saying the same thing. And that's why in the Rig Veda, there's that beautiful line, Ekam sat vipra bahuda vadanti. Truth is one, though it can be spoken of in different ways by different masters in different places. Again, a paraphrase, but generally what that, that uh, the Sanskrit there is saying. All right. So thus far, we've, we've said a lot of things. You know, I've kind of thrown a lot of words at you. And God willing, you can kind of make out something from all of them. As you know, this is a particularly big topic. And I feel rather unworthy to speak on its behalf, you know, to talk about the Christ. Such a powerful master. I don't think any words would properly express the feeling that is here in this boy's heart when the word, the name Christ is mentioned. Such a powerful fructifying force that I can only pray I'll open my mouth and see what words can come out and let's just pray that they will be sensible in, in some way, shape or form. Now, my intention today is to do a few things. I want to talk a little bit about the non-dual teachings of the Christ. I'm going to pick up a few lines from the New Testament and we're going to look at what those lines really mean. And we're going to do that uh, with regards to what we already know in Vedanta philosophy. Again, stressing that Vedanta philosophy is not Hindu philosophy. It's a philosophy expressing universal truths. It's no more Hindu, it's no more Indian than math is German or Arabic. You know, math and science and the laws of the universe are universal. 
And similarly, these spiritual truths are as well universal. And because they are universal, we can see how they are echoed in the powerful tradition known as Christianity. So the first thing we're going to do, we're going to look at the Christ's teachings, his central message through a non-dual lens. And then we're going to take away a few practical things as to what we can do right away to start embodying those values in our lives, start living like the Christ, imitating the Christ. And finally, we're going to talk about why it is we might want to do that. Um, this is going to be a lecture series. We've got five lectures on this topic. Today is kind of introductory. It's kind of a, um, the non-dual teachings of the Christ or what it is to be a non-dual master and why it is that the Christ is himself a non-dual master. It's kind of a broad, overarching um, treatment of the subject, but to get more specific, to get down to the nuts and bolts of it, the next four lectures will take up each gospel one at a time and verse by verse, not necessarily verse by verse, but part by part, understand each of the myths and stories and legends of the Christ to kind of derive from them the Vedantic or non-dual teaching. Now, Fabricio challenged me some time ago to give a lecture completely Vedanta-free on the Christ. And certainly we will do that, a bhakti-only lecture, and maybe around Christmas time. I don't know if we're going to do uh, modern Christmas, December 25th, or old Justinian Christmas, January uh, 7th. But on Christmas Day, we'll definitely do a lecture Vedanta-free on the Christ. This is not that lecture. This is a (laughs) Vedanta-heavy lecture on the Christ. (laughs) But another point I was hoping to kind of get at in this rather lengthy introduction was that um, when you go to India, you will meet many Christs. In other words, you will meet people who are truly living before your very eyes the highest ideals of spiritual life, the ideals that Christ himself embodied. Now, Christ is purity incarnate. Christ is love embodied. He was a burning, shining fire of service and devotion. As such, he was playing spirituality at its highest and finest level. And when you go to India, especially in the Himalayas, um, you will meet many wandering sadhus. And when you see them, you will feel as if you're looking at the Christ. They wander the world without a place to lay their head. The foxes have holes, but the Son of God has no place to call his home. Similarly, these sadhus wander from place to place, sleeping under trees, sleeping under the broad canopy of stars. And they live their lives entirely for God, entirely for spirit, you know. And you'll see that when you speak to them, they speak of nothing but the divine. They think of nothing but the divine. Every act they do is an act for the divine, in service of the divine. In fact, there's that beautiful story of the sadhu, uh, sadhu being a spiritual renunciant, who was meditating by the Ganga. And there was a scorpion, you know, walking towards the edge of the riverbank. And the scorpion fell into the water. And very quickly, the sadhu reached out his hand, caught the scorpion, and put it back on the land. But not before the scorpion could sting him, you know. So he put the scorpion down, he got stung, and he went back to his meditation. A second time, the scorpion walked and fell into the water. And a second time, the sadhu put his hand into the water to catch the scorpion and take it out. Again, he was stung. And then he sat quietly. A third time, that poor scorpion fell into the water. And this time, the sadhu grabbed the scorpion and decided to take the scorpion far away from the river so it wouldn't keep falling in. And of course, in the the process of transporting this (laughs) scorpion from the riverbank all the way to the plains, he was stung several times. Anyway, the sadhu, he set the scorpion down, he came back to the river and he resumed his meditation seat. He resumed his contemplation on God. Of course, nearby, there was, there was an onlooker, perhaps another sadhu or some devotee or something. And the onlooker said to him, I don't understand your behavior at all. Bruh, that was batshit crazy, you can imagine. 
Why did you keep picking the scorpion up if you knew you were going to be stung? I mean, the first time I get it, but once bitten, twice shy, no? One, uh, fool me once, shame on you. Was all of that lost on you? I mean, you kept picking it up even though it was stinging you. And the sadhu smiled and he said, what can I do? If you go to India, there's this beautiful phrase, what to do? What to do? <laughs> it's a great phrase. It's a beautiful line. But he would say something, oh, what to do? Um, the scorpion's nature is to sting. I am a sadhu. My nature is to help. Neither of us can help what, what it is that we did, you know? It's almost like a variation on the theme, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. The scorpion's nature is to sting, but that does not at all alter the unconditional compassion of the sadhu to serve and to help. Um, this is a tall order for most of us, right? Most of us need to have boundaries and we're still kind of playing spirituality at a lower level. But these sadhus are so selfless. They have no identification to the body at all that they'll go up into the Himalayas in the dead of winter and they'll come back with the thaw. You'd be like, brah, you had one loincloth and one blanket, and here you are. Somehow you had survived the winter. They'll sit in the middle of the desert, surrounded by fires under the scorching sun, and it won't bother them. For us, if somebody gets our Starbucks order wrong, we fly off the handle. You know, life pricks us a little bit, and we're like, ah! But these sadhus, such renunciation of body, that they are capable of being comfortable anywhere. Um, such renunciation of mind that they have no ego or sense of self, such, such that they're able to just serve any and all, unconditionally they love. And when you stand in front of them and they gaze at you, you see in their eyes a love that has always eluded you, a love that you looked for in parents, looked for in friends, looked for in society by achieving the various accolades you were told that you needed to get in order to achieve that love. And all the while that love eluded you, but then there you are standing in front of some strange dusty fella in the middle of the Himalayas and you see in their gaze all of that love and more you know? and it moves you to tears and that love has nothing to do with who you are it's not about you being a certain way or behaving a certain way it's a love that penetrates deep beyond physicality deep beyond psychology and touches you where you're truly at that field of awareness that is your essence nature and that is what the sadhu sees when the sadhu looks at you that's what Jesus would have seen when he looked at you and that's the love that you would have felt that would have caused you to leave behind your tiny uh, village in the Levant, leave behind your parent and follow this madman into the desert. You know, because there was some sparkle in his eyes, some twinkle, some authority behind his words that drew you from your life and into the desert with him to spread the message. You know, so that's why India, it's, it's very nice because in India, we have a model, a living model for what the Christ was, what the Christ is. The perfected yogi is indeed a living Christ, one who has renounced hearth and home, one who has moved beyond physicality and psychology, one who is able to love all beings unconditionally, and one who is able to speak from experience. And it's that that gives them their authority. So you see, the Christ was not a scholar. He wasn't just teaching from the scripture. He wasn't a sophist or a rhetor. He wasn't kind of debating people on the basis of his superior intellect. He spoke directly. He spoke through the to the point, and that's because he spoke from direct experience. So another thing I'm hoping to get across is that Christianity, and in fact any spiritual tradition, any genuine spiritual tradition, is about experience, not dogma. It's not about belief, nor is it even about intellectual understanding. It's about direct, first-hand encounters with that to which all the words point. The scriptures are but um, metaphors, they're but shadows, they're but echoes of the real thing. And it is only when you encounter the real thing that you have any authority whatsoever to teach. 
And the Christ, he encountered it in spades. And he thought, taught, taught from that. Uh, this is, it's hard to say the, the hard T. You know, our language is very ta, ta, ta. It's kind of hard to say taught. It's a thought. I always say thought. <laughs> so um, the Christ thought, you know, taught from that direct experience. And even today, you'll notice, true Christianity is about direct experience. So Paul wasn't teaching from dogma. Paul didn't believe in the Christ. He wasn't teaching because he believed in some man who lived 40 years ago in the Levant who was crucified. It, it, that wasn't what drove Paul all around Rome and Greece and all around the world. What drove Paul was a direct experience. He actually saw the Christ. And not only that, he felt the Christ. In his heart of hearts, he felt the Christ. The Christ congealed before him in dream and instructed him carefully and taught him certain practices. And he went on to teach those practices to everybody. You know, um, That was Paul. The Christ didn't teach out of belief. He didn't believe in God. He didn't just believe what the uh, Jewish authorities were saying about God at the time. He actually experienced God. I mean, in Christianity, he is God. He is, he is God imminent. He is the transcendent father made imminent in flesh as man uh, for the instruction of men. You know, so he's there and he's saying, um, you know, he goes into the desert and he prays and he communes. He communes with nature. He communes with God. So it's from experience that he's teaching. Now, if you look at all the saints in Catholicism and in Orthodoxy, a lot of these saints, in fact, I would say almost all of them, have direct experiences. Think, for instance, Teresa of Avia. So Teresa of Avia, at first, was um, very conflicted about her visions, you know. She was an uh, aristocrat who was sent to a nunnery. Get thee to a nunnery, Ophelia, you know. And she was sent to a nunnery, you know, for some discipline. But then eventually she came to love the life, and she became a very devout adherent of... Uh, Catholicism, and she started having actual visions. You know, while she was praying, kneeling before the cross, she would feel in the room a kind of warmth and, and presence that surrounded her like a hug. And one day while she was kneeling and praying, she felt a hand on her shoulder and suddenly a wave of bliss washed through her and she felt reassured and happy. And she would see these visions of a, of a man appearing before her, resplendent in a robe of pure light, smiling a smile of pure beneficent, love embodied, purity incarnate. She would see that. And of course, she would go and tell other people about her visions and ask for some advice. And they, of course, um, told her it was the devil. <laughs> they were like, ah, I don't know about that. You know, the devil knows scripture too. You see all these other people who didn't have experience, who only adhered to the commandments out of blind belief. Those people were perhaps frustrated and jealous. They were frustrated because belief wasn't scratching the itch, wasn't filling um, the well. And they were frustrated because they could see quite clearly in their sister nun um, the increase of such virtues as humility, love, compassion. In fact, many people, especially aristocrats, came to see Teresa of Avia because as a result of having these visions, she also had authority. And notice, authority comes from experience, nowhere else. It doesn't come from memorizing scripture. It doesn't come from a title or a particular patch of white on your collar. It doesn't come from the color of your clothes or uh, how big your sangha is. Authority comes from experience. And Teresa of Avia had experience in spades. So people came to her, and from her experience, she was able to instruct people in some of the secret teachings. I'm sure, you know, any of you who've read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you're like, the fuck is going on here? <laughs> Every word of the Bible is true. It is a profound text, um, but it has to be properly understood. 
it's kind of hard to like go at it directly, especially without a genuine spiritual practice. You don't have, if you don't have mystic vision or to use the Christian phase, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, if you just read the Bible without the right spirit, you won't understand it. It won't make any sense to you. In fact, it would be downright offensive in many places. A lot of it is metaphorical. A lot of if, if it is symbolic. The seven branched candlestick. Hmm? The seven chakras. Uh, just a little taste of what's going on here. Um, those who have not had the experience won't get what's happening. So, Teresa, because she had an experience, she was able to look at scripture through the lens of her own personal experience, through the light of mystic vision, and thereby she was able to derive from the scriptures a life-giving force, uh, true teachings. And when she taught this to others, they felt inspired and happy, and they, they were filled, you know, they were fulfilled, and they went home and had a change of heart. So she started becoming more popular, you know, very wealthy aristocrats started visiting her. She had some disciples. A sangha was growing up around Teresa. That's what happens. Usually when someone has experience, it's like a flower blooming. And what happens when a flower blooms? Fragrance follows. And then what happens? The bees will come. So similarly, Teresa, she had all these experiences such that people came to her and everyone was jealous. And so all these other nuns and even the father would say to her, it's the devil, it's the devil. And poor Teresa, she had so much uh, cognitive dissonance, you know. She was like, how can it be the devil when it feels so beautiful and so pure and so real? And how can it be the devil when my life is improving every day? I'm starting to feel more love for God. You know, how can the devil have that influence on me? So to her credit, poor Teresa, she managed to stay true to her experience, despite what all the people were saying to her. Um, and she was thus canonized as Saint Teresa of Avia. And she wrote a beautiful book, The Interior Castle, who anybody who is serious about spirituality ought to read. And in that book, she speaks to Christ, like uh, with the familiarity uh, of a lover to her beloved. Uh, Hannah said very beautifully one day, Teresa speaks to Christ as if the Christ is her boyfriend. Huh? Something that Rumi would be very at home with. The idea that the, God is your beloved and God is your very own and you should be that intimate with God. And so she often waxes lyrical. And there's this even this very beautiful story about Teresa and one of her visions. So she's in a dream, right? And she's having this dream vision and a man in a long white robe approaches her. And note, he's kind of European looking, which is actually a very interesting point. He doesn't appear like a swarthy Mediterranean or, uh, you know, kind of like a shorter Jewish man. No, he appears in a kind of a tall European kind of fashion with a long white robe. Um, and interestingly, he asks Teresa in the vision, who are you? And Teresa, she would sign all of her letters, Teresa of Jesus. You know, she had so consecrated her life to Jesus that she would sign her letters literally, Teresa of Jesus. So, of course, in this dream, she said to the strange apparition, I am Teresa of Jesus. Who are you, huh? <laughs> she turned the question around. And the vision, note this, said to her, I am Jesus of Teresa. Isn't that beautiful? I, Depeche Mode will say, your personal Jesus. <laughs> I am your Jesus. I am the divine appearing to you in the form most pleasing to you. Out of my compassion, I'm coming to you now in this form. 
I am Theresa of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? And notice, Theresa was speaking from experience. John of the Cross, another beautiful Spanish mystic, spoke from experience. Of course, these are Catholic saints. Let's look to the Orthodox saints. So we've got Theophan the Recluse, who when he was, you know, just getting kind of interested in spirituality, he saw an incorrupt body. Do you know what that is? In the Christian tradition, there are these bodies that don't decay. And you can still go and see them, by the way. You can verify this stuff for yourself. All around the world, there are bodies of saints preserved in ideal form from like the 1700s, 1600s. They're called incorruptibles or bodies that are incorrupt, you know, and it's the power of their spirituality that has caused their body not only to resist decay, but also to emit a kind of fragrance. So sometimes you walk into the room and you'll smell sandalwood or kind of uh, candy or something like that. It's you know, to those who have seen such a thing, this makes sense. To those who haven't, of course, they'll be like, I don't believe that this is out there. But it is. There's a lot out there that we don't see or don't fully understand. So Theophan the recluse saw such a thing. And that's what kind of wet his appetite for spiritual life. Theophan the recluse, he saw an incorrupt body. Um, and he himself, I think, became incorrupt after his death. Um, but he wrote many, many books. And one very beautiful one is called The Spiritual Life. Actually, give me a moment. I just wanted to show you, um, show you this, this book. I, I thought this cover was so beautiful. Um, this is Theophan the Recluse writing a letter. So the letter says, uh, Before your departure to Moscow, he was a Russian Orthodox saint, uh, we agreed to carry on a correspondence. Who is he writing to? This woman. Just a random woman. And uh, she's holding a letter here, as you can see. And the letter says, Concerning the things most needful to you, of course. I expected you would let me know how you... And that's kind of it for the cover. But what's it? what the cover depi depicts is Theophan, of course, enlightened with this halo of, of wisdom, is writing a letter to this woman, who is, of course, reading the letter that was sent to her. Um, and why is he writing a letter to this woman? Is it a love letter? Hardly. He sees her as a daughter and you kind of feel that in the letters. But I'll read to you now um, just kind of one of the, uh, the opening of this book. It, it, it opens with, Once in the middle of the dance floor at some annual ball, a young lady had a sudden glimpse of the immortality of her soul. And as this vision flashed upon her inward eye, she was struck with the thought that all this swirling around the dance floor was utterly futile. <laughs> Amazed and disturbed, she wrote to the recluse. That's his name, the recluse, because he kind of stayed in a house by himself and contemplated God all day. <laughs> um... Is this normal or is it a morbid hindrance to a desire for a happy life in the world? <laughs> to answer her question, the answer to her question evoked a correspondence which resulted in this volume. So this is The Spiritual Life and How to Be Attuned to It by Saint Theophan the Recluse. So that's a powerful Orthodox saint and you'll see in his writings uh, a tremendous juice and life. He writes with authority because he writes from experience. And not only that, he's writing to someone who herself is having an experience. So you see, true Christianity is about experience. True religion, true spirituality of any kind is about experience. Um, and to have these experiences, the early church fathers like um, St. Anthony, St. Anthony the Great and Evagrius of Pontius, whose book Chapters on Prayer or Practicos is absolutely essential to the aspiring Christian mystic. Um, these men, uh, Vagrius, St. Anthony, 
were so inspired by Jesus and his time in the desert that they too left Constantinople, left Jerusalem, and went out into the deserts of Egypt to commune with nature as Jesus did, to meet Satan and overcome him as Jesus did. So notice, when you look at the early church fathers, they didn't just believe in Christ. They literally followed him, like literally went to the desert to do what he did. You know, a funny thing about Evagrius. So Evagrius, he, he was in Constantine, what is today uh, Istanbul. So Constantine is, of course, the center of the Roman Empire. Uh, and that was, of course, where Christianity became the religion of the empire. Before, it was just a bunch of scraggly misfits running about avoiding persecution. But, you know, um, in that time... Constantine, the emperor, had enshrined Christianity in a grand sweeping political move as the state religion, as the empire's religion. So suddenly there was a kind of burgeoning of Christian thought and uh, philosophy. And when you read those writers, you will see that it's a different time. They weren't just believing in the Christ. They were fervent with devotion and really interested in working out their own salvation through actual genuine practice and direct personal experience. So Evagrius, he was an orator. He was really smart, like he really understood the scripture and he gave great talks, you know. He was a brilliant orator. Now, because he was a brilliant orator at the center of the Roman Empire, something like New York or something, uh, he got a lot of fame. And because of his fame, money came into his life and he found himself becoming increasingly worldly. And like that Russian uh, socialite that we read about earlier, he started to feel the futility of all this stuff. Nothing was really satisfying him. The money was good, but it wasn't scratching the itch. The adoration of the uh, people and the public was good, but it was only making him vain and increasing egotism. And he felt like life in the world, all that worldliness, all that luxury was taking him away from the simplicity of Christ's message. Christ, you know, they put him on a throne and put a crown on him and now all the churches are so ornate. No, the guy would have flipped some tables if he saw what it is that he had to see today. You know, it was so simple and so moderate. So Evagrius, desiring to go back to that simplicity, actually fled Constantinople. You know, he left the city uh, to get away from fame, to get away from wealth because he saw those things as detracting from his spiritual life. Isn't that beautiful? Um, in the Bible, you hear such lines as wisdom with God is foolishness with the world and foolishness with the world is wisdom with God. You hear such lines as it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You hear such lines as look, look at the pond, the lavender. Even King Solomon is not clad in raiment finer than this. Nature is so beautiful, so um, profound in its austere simplicity that therein lies the true wealth, not the baubles and trinkets of worldly life. And the Christ himself lived and walked the talk, you know. Um, and he never collected anything. He was like a bird. He says, saints don't collect anything. Be like a bird, you know. So anyway, um, oh, and another line. I'm just going to kind of ad-lib it today. So let's see what happens. I'm so sorry that there's no structure to this. Maybe one will assert itself. I, I'm just feeling happy and inspired and in love and let that speak. Um, so we'll see where it goes. Yeah, but not a magpie. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully we can talk a little bit about transubstantiation too before we close today. So you see, the Christ, his message was predominantly, stop trying to make money. I mean, if you just live for truth, not for money. And Evagrius uh, was increasingly surrounded by money. 
And you can tell this is someone who genuinely wanted to live the life of the Christ. So when he felt like the money was taking him away from that message, he left it all behind and he went to Jerusalem. The story gets better. So he goes to Jerusalem. And he goes and stays in a monastery started by a Roman noble, Melania. So Melania starts this beautiful monastery and he goes and he stays there um, or a nunnery and he starts giving talks there in Jerusalem. Lo and behold, the guy is so talented at what he does that sooner or later, he's got a following in Jerusalem and suddenly wealth starts to appear for him and fame. <laughs> it's a good problem to have, you might say, but not for Evagrius. He was, oh my God, I'm just so popular. (laughs) It's true though. uh, He couldn't really follow the Christ if he had all this fame and popularity. So then what did he do? He heard, and this is around like the third century or fourth century. He heard that there were a group of monks, mystics in the desert who had literally left behind everything to go and live reclusive, hermit-like lives in small kind of settings out in the high deserts of Egypt. So he left Jerusalem and went out there. And that's when his true spirituality begins. His writing changes completely. So the Practicos, which I'll put in the chat here, is a text that everybody should have. Uh, Whatever your path is, the Practicos or Chapters on Prayer, it's another text. These are very important um, texts on Christian prayer what it means to pray and how to pray. So as you know, prayer is central to the practice of Christianity. But not many people can tell you what it is or how to pray. Uh, For a lot of people, prayer is making deals with God. I'll fast for one week if you give me that promotion. Prayer is a way to cajole worldliness out of that one who despised worldliness. Isn't that kind of weird to ask Jesus for a Maserati? (laughs) But that's what we typically think prayer is. We think it's to go and kind of beg God for something and make deals. I'll give you this if, as if God needed you to give it that. (laughs) It already owns everything. What deals can you make with God? (laughs) What do you have that God doesn't also have? (laughs) But anyway, that's typically what we see prayer as. We don't really know how to pray. Evagrius took up the question and for chapters and chapters and chapters wrote what prayer is and what prayer isn't. And not only that, he has a book called... um, I think it's what a monastic's handbook for combating demons is what it's called. A monk's guide to kicking demon butt or something. There's a book. It's a beautiful book where um, he talks about the ways that the various passions can take you away from spiritual life. Yeah, exactly. But there's some, there's a wisdom to that too. It's only natural, you know, like, Whatever you ask of God, God will give. As you will soon hear in today's lecture, we talk about knock and it will be openeth unto ye. You know, ask and ye shall receive. Yes, yes. There's room for that. But remember, Evagrius, he's trying to play at the highest level, which is what Jesus was, was demonstrating with his life. So he went to the desert and he truly understood prayer. And when you read Evagrius, you will see that prayer to a true Christian is really what meditation is to a Buddhist or a Hindu. Prayer is meditation. Prayer is the act of bringing the mind to a single point, sending all of one's thought and intention and attention towards one's own ideal, towards God, like one would pour an unbroken stream of oil from one vessel to another, so too was prayer the act of directing one's entire being towards that which one found most sacred to them. You see. So that was Evagrius, and of course, you know, um, there are all these great writers who also went and found solitude. Anyway, my point here, the point that I'm driving at is 
Christianity is actually a story of experience, of direct personal experience. And it's not just that the Christ communed with God. It's not just that and Christ was God, of course, but um, he was an avatar, a divine incarnation, which is one of the deepest mysteries of religious life. Ramakrishna and Rama and Krishna, they were all avatars. And of course, that's a topic for another day. But the point here is that it's not just the Christ that communed with God. It was also Paul who communed with the Christ. It was uh, literally every saint in Catholicism, every saint in the Greek and Russian Orthodox Church. Um, Christianity is a tradition of direct personal experience. And it's not only that. It's a tradition that gives you all the tools for you to have just such an experience. The same experience the Christ and Paul and saints have. Those experiences are your birthright and they are the goal of Christian living. And the Orthodox Church has no shortage of practices, no shortage of texts and manuals offering practical advice as to how to achieve this visio dei, which in Latin means vision of God, you know, how to have these direct encounters. So there's the uh, Orthodox prayer row. Actually, brother, can you pass me the... Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This uh, prayer rope is very special to me. It was made by the monks up in Mount Athos, you know, so the Greek Orthodox people. So they strung together um, these prayer beads. Does this remind you of anything? Does this look familiar? Does anybody have a mala? Is, a mala, is there a mala on anybody right now? I don't know if we can... Well, yeah, there's malas over here. We're trying to figure out what beads these are, right? <laughs> Some malas. I left my mala on the altar in there, so I don't have it on me. But one day I have to do show and tell. <laughs> but notice, what is a japa mala if not a series of seeds that you kind of do your prayers on, right? A rosary. And this is, in fact, a rosary made of rope. It's called a prayer rope. So what do the Orthodox um, Christians do? They find some solitude. And in solitude, they say... Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me. That's it. And they repeat it all day. They're doing japa meditation. And as they repeat it, they become single-pointed. Their mind becomes focused upon their ideal. And if you'd like to understand the Jesus prayer, which is at the heart of the Orthodox Church, you only have to read Way of a Pilgrim. So Way of a Pilgrim is, to me, one of the most profound spiritual texts. Um, and you'll hear me say this about almost every text I talk about. This is the most profound spiritual text. Because <laughs> they're all so great. And... Uh, this text is about a young Russian monk who is trying to understand unceasing prayer. So one of the goals of the Orthodox Church is to have uninterrupted vision of the divine and an unceasing vision of the divine. So really unceasing prayer, unceasing meditation, which for the tantrikas in the room, you know, this is just another way of saying sahaja samadhi. Not just nirvikalpa samadhi, but eyes open samadhi. What is samadhi? Total absorption in your divine ideal. So in meditation, the goal of a yogi is to bring their mind to a single point and then allow all sense of ego and self, deny thyself, the Christ would say, to melt into that object, that idea, that divinity. And that's samadhi. And it's an indescribable thing. And to continuously have that, even while your eyes are open and you're moving around in the world, is the highest attainment of South Asian spirituality. It's called Sahaja Samadhi. And so the Russian Orthodox Church calls this unceasing prayer. Not the Russian Orthodox, all Orthodox churches call it unceasing prayer. So in Way of a Pilgrim, this young monk is trying to learn how to do that. And an elder, like a guru, instruct him, instructs him in the ways of the Jesus prayer. And when you read about his experiences doing the Jesus prayer every day at his altar in solitude, 
you will be so impressed because it echoes all the realizations of all the great yogis, that current of joy that you should feel, that ability to kind of be in the body without being tyrannized by it, to kind of calm the mind and quieten the thoughts. All of that is attained by rigorous, daily, consistent and intense application of a technique. And the technique is mantra meditation. So like the yogis right now in the Himalayas, it's very simple what they're doing. All day, they're sitting in caves, sitting in ashrams, simply attempting to bring their mind to a single point. They do this by means of a mantra, which they chant mentally, or sometimes they whisper it, uh, they mumble it upon their lips. And they're doing this by means of a visualization, usually a form of the divine that's most pleasing to them, like Shiva or Kali. In, in South Asia, there are a lot of these forms. Each of them is seen as a particular aspect of one god. It's not that Hindus believe that there are many gods, actually. Hindus believe that that one god um, has many aspects. And each of those aspects uh, appeal to different people. You know, So some people might love Durga. Durga is their way of kind of coming to the divine. Other people might love Shiva. And so these different uh, images, different icons, so to speak, kind of call to different people. But they're all icons pointing to the same thing. Christ is perhaps one such image, one such form that you can use to get to the formless. Now, none comes to the Father except by way of the Son. In other words, none can go to the formless, transcendental divine, which literally transcends all thought, you know. Uh, none can get to that except through some specialized thought, some kind of form, like the form of the Christ, or in the Orthodox and Catholic traditions, any of the saints. You can meditate on anyone. Uh, Teresa of Lisieux, Teresa of Avia, uh, John of the Cross, Theophan the Recluse. There are some American saints too, like, uh, what is it, the Alaskan saint, uh, Hermaville? Something. There are a lot of American saints. They came into Alaska from Russia. Anyway, so you see, the technologies are there. There are actual techniques that you can put into practice right away for you to have actual direct experiences that Paul had, that the saints had. And make no mistake, this is the goal of Christianity. This is true Christianity as it's being practiced in Greece and in Russia and in certain places in America and in many places in India and in many places in the Middle East. Something like 2.8 billion people in the world are Christian. And of the 2.8 billion people, there are a lot of people who are really Christian, actually Christian, who are having experiences, who are actually every day being canonized. You know, every town has its spiritual master. So one thing I wanted to express today beyond anything else is that Christianity is a living tradition. It has unfortunately been misrepresented predominantly here in America as this kind of dead tradition of dogma, of belief. Believe or otherwise, eternal barbecue for you. <laughs> if you don't believe in God, then you'll go to some special place and you'll be cooked. Or um, belief alone is enough. That if you just believe, you'll be saved. But, and let's be very clear here, belief is not the same as faith. And this is demonstra demonstrated notably by scripture. So in scripture, notice that the Christ is always accusing people of having no faith. Do you notice that? Isn't that weird? He looks to his disciples, people who can literally see him, who have no trouble believing that he's there, and he says to them, ye of little faith. Isn't that interesting? They know he's the son of God. I mean, they've seen him do plenty of miracles. So they believe, they believe he's the son of God. But belief is not faith. In fact, the Greek word pistis for faith is very different from the word for belief, you know? So you can think of belief as kind of uh, something that happens in the mind. You can think of faith as something far deeper. It happens in the heart. It's a feeling. And unfortunately, there are many Christians who believe 
but don't have experience. Not only that, don't have feeling. And in the name of the Christ, they cast stones, not just at adulterers, but at people of different sexualities, of people from different religions, uh, people from different political groups. All of these, the Christ would have opposed vehemently. The sweet and gentle Christ who had a mother's heart, who did not judge anybody, who never said she didn't commit adultery. Instead, he said, let he who has not sinned cast the first stone. You know, he said, even if she committed adultery, who the fuck cares? She's a human being. You're a human being. You're all imperfect in the eyes of God. Let's get perfect together. Follow me. Let's practice. That's what the Christ would have said. He was not one to judge others. What he judged was greed. What he judged was lust, you know, not the greedy, not the lustful. In fact, some people were so upset that he was hanging out with tax collectors. So Matthew, before he became Matthew, he was Levi and he was a tax collector. And one thing we can say is categorically true of all cultures everywhere. They revile their tax collectors. (laughs) So these bribe, you know, these tax collectors who are kind of prone to bribing and greed or whatever, they were seen with some distaste by Jewish society. And Christ went and hung out with them. And he sat amongst them and he taught amongst them. And when people said, look, the man is hanging out with the brutes. Um, he said, when you're a doctor, you go to the sick. <laughs> so he, he, he loved the lustful. He loved the greedy because those were his disciples. Those were the people that derived the most benefit from his message. He did not like lust and he did not like greed. So he would flip tables when he encountered such things. But never would he have uh, been hateful or cruel or angry. So you see, There are people who in his name have done the very opposite thing that he would have done, who are living opposite lives to the Christ, people who use his name to aggrandize themselves, to collect money and honors and fame, things that Evagrius was trying to run away from. These things, today's uh, church authorities are running towards. (laughs) So this is very important. The Christ foresees all of this. In Matthew, he talks about the brood of vipers, the brood of vipers who will say, Lord, Lord, yet when the day of judgment comes, I will say, I don't know them. I know them not. And in one way, you could say this is, they know me not either. (laughs) They don't know who I am, yet they're using my name. It's like the people that show up to the club and they say, I'm with, I don't know, name your favorite rock star here. Let me into the club. I'm with, and then the rock star comes and the rock star says, I don't know those people. (laughs) It's like that. All the people who profess belief in the Christ, but in the name of that belief, go out into the world and harm others and cast stones and judge and accumulate wealth and power. Those people, when they try to get into the club, the Christ will be like, I don't know who they are because they didn't know me. They didn't know my message. And thereby, I also don't know them. So this is important. When we're talking about Christianity, and it's something that I kind of breach with, uh, broach with a little hesitance, because I know that a lot of people are Jesus allergic here in America. You've all been scarred by your early encounters with the brood of vipers. Um, But whenever we talk about Christianity, about this powerful, life-giving, beautiful, and genuine spiritual tradition, I must first start with a series of apologies. Um, There is some of us that have made the rest of us look bad. And please don't judge us on the basis of those brood of vipers, because even the Christ called them out. Anybody who is accumulating wealth, who is using the Christ's name to make money and solidify worldly success, anybody who is using the name of the Christ to cast stones and vilify others and demonize people and put them down, knows not the Christ. And we recognize them not. You know, that's important. So Vivekananda once said, a nation must never be judged by its weaklings. You know. 
the Christ would have said, judge a tree by its fruit. But unfortunately, this tree has a lot of different kinds of fruit. Some are sour and bitter and others are sweet. So when you're judging a tree, judge it by its sweet fruit. You know, judge it by its good fruit. When you judge a nation, don't judge it for its weaklings and stragglers. Judge it by its strong people, its true heroes, its true heroines. Um, they are the ones that show in Vivekananda's word that the lifeblood of a nation runs strong and true, you know. So look for what's good. So here in Christianity, yes, it's true. There are the brood of vipers, but they are not Christian. They cannot be Christian because look, they live for the world, not for God, you know. So that, I'm happy, just wanted to get that out of the way. I had to get that off our chest, you know. Now we can do it <laughs> and we'll be brief. Um, because this is a lecture series, so we can kind of go slowly after this, but this is the preamble. So, importantly, the Christ was unconditional in his love. Yes, and this can be said of everybody, exactly. Uh, you know, uh, there are Hindus out there who hate Muslims and vilify them and call themselves Hindu. We don't recognize them. There are, yeah, uh, there are Muslims who uh, demonize others and there are Christians who demonize Muslims and there are Jews who demonize Christians and Christians who demonize Jews. All of that is irreligion. All of that is more money and power, more lust and greed coming to you in the disguise of religion, which is exactly what Satan would do, right? I mean, the, the <laughs> once um, someone came at me with a knife, right? Screaming, you have demons in you and were, was attempting to um, exorcise me. But her eyes were rolling about in her head and she was covered in a sheen of sweat. And it was kind of terrifying to see. Um, and I'm like, sitting there thinking, um, how odd, you know, how odd that the only way to get rid of demons is to kill people, right? I mean, isn't that exactly what Satan would do? <laughs> yes. So the first thing to recognize is that who the Christ really is might be a thing apart from what you've heard about him. As Red is saying there in the chat, sometimes you can love an artist, but not their fan club. You know, there's Elvis, and then there's the Elvis fan club. You can love Elvis, but not really be into the fan club. You might not really want to subscribe to the newsletter. <laughs> Sometimes I argue in America, the best time to go to a church is when you have it to yourself. When there isn't a service. When there isn't someone on the pulpit telling you to hate some political party or some group of people for the choices. Whatever church it is, even if just yesterday someone was doing that in the pulpit, today on Monday, when you go inside there, you will feel a kind of presence, a beauty, a truth, you know? Mads is saying they love dead things, dead ideas, more than the only thing which gives true life. Yes. And, you know, if you go to a church by yourself and you just sit there in one of the pews and you just stare at the symbol of the cross and you allow yourself to become calm and receptive and quiet and you simply listen to the air, there is an unmistakable sweetness. There is an unmistakable presence. Oh, that's the Christ. That's the life the, the, I am the bread of life, you know, that's, that's what the Christ came to teach. Now, first thing, the Christ is a thing apart from what is true, uh, mostly being said about him, you know, so there are rumors about him and what he cares about, what he cares about, he's different. The next thing to think about is that the Christ might not be a person, but a state, a feeling, a force that is equally alive in all of us as it was in that great master that we call Jesus or Joshua or Yeshua, you know. Um, so when the Christ speaks, the I that he's using might not be referring to Jesus. It might be referring to that which is coming through Jesus. In fact, he says this very clearly. I, meaning the small I, can of my own self, small s self, 
do nothing. I can of my own self do nothing. Everything that I do, my father who art in heaven does through me. But in the same breath, he will also say to you, I and my father art one. Importantly, he has surrendered Jesus. Jesus is the Greek word for Yeshua. He surrendered Joshua. There is nobody there anymore. He has emptied himself of all things. In fact, one of his central teachings is deny thyself. You know, deny thyself. Um, that self-abnegation is not whipping yourself over the back or fasting yourself to death. It's perhaps more importantly, discerning through philosophical inquiry, the true nature of what you are beyond body and mind. Once you glimpse that body and mind and ego dissolve like the mists in the first rays of, of wisdom's sun. So the Christ is one who has denied himself. He has emptied himself of all personal will, of all personal ambition. He has allowed himself to become an open vessel through which grace pours. He is one with God because there is no one left there to obstruct God. You see? And so there's God. And God is the one who speaks through the Christ, who, who, who uh, does all the things. And of course, Christ is God. But Christ is God, not the man, you know? Um, this, of course, would be heretical. It's a very subtle point. The point here is the Christ is God because the Christ has so fully denied himself, so fully ended his personal will, his personal ambition, and so completely aligned his will with the will of God such that only God remains standing in the place that once a person might have stood. That is the spiritual perfection of Christ. And before we close today's lecture, we'll talk a little bit as to how all of us um, can get there too through Vedanta. Um, yes, I like this, the Greek, Greek word kinosis. Also, there's another word, apatheia. Apatheia is a word that the Greek masters, like Evagrius, liked a lot. Not apathy, but apatheia. Apathy comes from it, but apatheia means like a stoic peace, an ability to kind of be with all situations without it kind of getting getting your goat. Just seeing it all as God's will. Uh, yeah, exactly. And you know what? Um, to close the lecture series, uh, people will not like this. So today we opened with Jesus Christ, non-dual master, which already is already kind of clickbaity. And in fact, I don't want to preach to the choir. I'm talking to Vedantist here. You already feel the universality of all religions. You're all already quite syncretic. I'm hoping that this idea, these ideas can be heard by those who are perhaps on the fence. Um, so I shouldn't make it so, uh, at the outset, heretical. <laughs> I want these, uh, these talks to kind of pass an ecumenical council in some sense. <laughs> But yes, Claire, at the very end of our lecture series, we'll do a lecture called The Tantric Jesus, which I, I don't know if it's a very uh, politically correct title, but Tantra in the sense of the subtle philosophy, not the kind of, you know, sensual kind of thing. But yes, and it's about that, Kashmir Shaivism and creativity and playfulness through the lens of the Christ's teachings. Um, but anyway, getting back to our point then, the Christ is a force. And, you know, you'll feel this exemplified by his response to the Sadducees. So all these elders, they come to him and they say, who are you to be teaching people? You know, they challenge his authority. Remember, he was speaking from experience. So his words carried a kind of conviction, a kind of authority that moved people. Whoever he spoke to felt moved by the Shakti flowing through him. You know, they were converted, not because he had clever arguments, but because of his personality, because he walked the talk, uh, because he was a living embodiment of all that they held dear. Now, 
when he would teach, people would follow. And of course, this threatened the powers that were. And they challenged him. They said, who are you to teach? I mean, you're like a kid. You're 20-something. You're in your early 30s. Who are you to be teaching others as if you were some great rabbi? I mean, we're rabbis. You know, we're old bearded men with jewels on our vest. And we come from the line of Abraham. Remember, so too did Jesus. In Matthew, we are clearly told that Jesus, through um, actually his mother, not quite Joseph, but through his mother, um, because, you know, Joseph is not really responsible for, <laughs> but through the Theotokos, through Mary, is related to David. So Jesus is the son of David, and that's what makes him the king of, of Israel. Um, so yes, Jesus too is from the lineage of Abraham, but of course, not everybody knows that. And of course, many people dispute it. So these Sadducees, these Pharisees, these church elders, the, the, the synagogue elders, they come and they say, you're just a kid. You're a young upstart. You have no authority. And you have no authority by lineage. We have a lineage. We come from Abraham's seed. Abraham actually literally means in Hebrew, father of nations. So Abraham, and here we are standing in his name teaching. And look at what this young upstart says to them. Almost with a cheeky smile, you can imagine. I actually know he was very serious. He, he had <laughs> literally had an axe to grind, right? He, he wanted to take down the tree with the axe to the root. Um, so probably unsmilingly, he probably would have said, before Abraham was, I am. Let's pause for a moment and consider that. It wasn't that he had bad grammar, right? It wasn't that he fumbled his tenses. He very intentionally said, before Abraham was, I am. What's going on here? Clearly, he didn't mean Yeshua, the body. Because Yeshua, the body, was only 30-something years old. It had a beginning, you know. Yeshua was born in a manger to a woman named Mary. Um... And his birth was witnessed by three wizards from the east. <laughs> so Yeshua, the body wasn't there when Abraham was, you know. So of course, Jesus didn't mean me, this guy, this one. Jesus was there. And if he meant that, he would have said that. He would have said, before Abraham was, I was. But he didn't say that. He's kind of playing with tense here. He's saying, before Abraham was, I am. Because what he's truly saying is, I am that I am. It's not I was or I will be, it's I am. And I am is outside of time. I am exists. Time comes, or I am is existence itself. Time comes in and out of existence. So before Abraham was, I am. In fact, uh, what the bush said to Moses was exactly that. I am that I am. And so here the Christ is saying, in some, somewhat of a similar vein, I'm eternal. And I'm eternal not because I'm around for a long time. I'm eternal because I'm outside of time. And notice now his eye is being displaced from the body and mind and being placed with the awareness that is prior to, ontologically prior to, time, space, and causality. It's in that sense that he probably says, uh, before Abraham was, I am. Again, he's saying where he's getting his authority from. Exactly, Emily, exactly. And in our seventh lecture, if that comes, it's going to be a... You'll see, there's almost word-for-word -word similarities between the Gita and the Bhagavad... Uh, sorry, Gita and the uh, Scripture. Word-for-word. Uh, Krishna's message to Arjuna is almost exactly like the Christ's message to his disciples. And actually, what we're going to do on Thursday in a little bit, is pick up the Gospel of Thomas. Some 90 or so verses are not so long and kind of move through quite quickly. But the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas um, is an Upanishad. 
because it's Jesus kind of talking to Thomas, you know. Um, so yeah, you, you will see soon that actually the Christ message is really echoed, or not to say echoed, but paralleled by the Gita in 250 BCE. Of course, you're all Vedantist, you know this. You know the universality of all religion. But if people believe that there's something unique to their religion that is not there in other religions, it's only because they haven't studied other religions. Once people begin to comparatively look at religions, they realize, oh, it's all one truth being expressed in different ways. Um, does that mean that we should kind of homogenize everything? No. And so at the end of this lecture, I'm going to say what's unique to Christianity and uh, um, why it's a powerful tradition because of that. Okay, so for now, let's again go back to our central theme here. The Christ is speaking from experience, and that experience is um, as the Son of God, as the imminent transcendent one, as God made flesh, and that is as the I am presence in the vessel of a body and mind. So he says that to the Sadducees. All right, so the Christ is speaking from experience, and what the Christ is might have not that much to do with the vessel. You know, that's one of the mysteries of the Christ. Who was speaking? If it was God speaking, how do we reconcile God with the man? And in fact, he himself says, I and my father are one. So he's already offering us a way to reconcile the two. They're not different. They are one, literally non-dual. And uh, this is a point of contention between the Gnostics and some of the early church fathers and the church authorities as they stand today. Now, as Guillermo is saying in the chat, the Trinity is very important to Christian theology. And the Trinity is Father, Son, and Mother, or Holy Spirit. So the divine feminine, Sophia, Logos and Sophia, the Gnostics will tell you. Um, Sophia, uh, the Hebrew goddess of wisdom, who is one with God, the Ein Sof Aur and Sophia, all that. No need to get into that today. But Sophia or the Holy Ghost, the spirit, the medium through which the two, father and son, can be one, is a third part of this trinity. And those of you who have seen the trident of Shiva, there's the trinity of knower, knowing, known or waking, dreaming, deep sleep, the trident is three plus one. It's three turned into one. And that's essentially what Jesus might be trying to do when he says the Father and I art one. How do we understand the Holy Ghost? Now here we, yes, there we go. Here, let's look to the Neoplatonists like Iamblichus. So remember, in Platonism, in the philosophy of Plato, which is kind of featured quite heavily in Christian theology, but in Plato's philosophy, in Plato's worldview, there are two worlds. There is the transcendent world, a world of forms and archetypes, a divine realm of purity and beauty and truth. And then there is this degenerate, fallen shadow world where things are only half real, half true. They are but uh, echoes of the real thing. So you see, Platonic metaphysics divides the world into two. One is the transcendent and the other is the imminent. The imminent kind of sucks. You know, the imminent is nothing more than shadows playing upon a cave wall. The transcendent is the goal. So you see, this is duality, hardcore duality, um, straight up duality. The other, there are two things, something good, something bad. And so you'll hear this also, you know, in Christian um, uh, languaging, like wisdom with the world is foolishness with God. Uh, foolishness with the world is wisdom with God. So it privileges the transcendent over the imminent. But the next question you must ask is, how is the transcendent related to the imminent? Because if they're just parallel, and if you are imminent, then there's no point in talking about a transcendent. You're never going to get there, you know? Um, how do the two of them interact? How does the transcendent express itself in the imminent? Only as a reflection, as Plato would say? Um, and how does the imminent become the transcendent? 
Because if it can't, then what are you doing in spiritual life? You know, so there's a problem here. It's almost like Descartes' mind and body problem. It's actually literally the same problem. And the problem is, uh, how does the transcendent mind or the subtle stuff interact with the gross physical stuff? Gross in both senses of the word. <laughs> so now we look to the Neoplatonist and the Neoplatonist say something profound. Thank you, Adam. And the Neoplatonist says this. Actually, Fabricio, not bad. We're kind of Vedanta-free so far, almost. You know, we haven't done any Drigdusha Viveka or anything like that. It's coming, unfortunately. It's coming. But uh, thus far, Fabricio, not bad, right? We haven't used any Sanskrit phrases or anything. <laughs> yeah, so far, so good. So um, the Neoplatonist, like Iamblichus and, and Plotinus, Plotinus before him, um, they did something very interesting. They said, okay, think of it this way. There are two sides to a coin. There is heads. Let's call this the transcendental realm. In Christian theology, you might call it the father. Let's call it the father. Now, let's look at the other side, tails. Let's call this the world. Or actually, better yet, let's call this the sun. Um, the father is the sun. Let's just call it the sun. It's the imminent transcendent. So how does the sun show up? How can the sun both be transcendent and imminent? How can the sun be one with the father? In other words, the question I'm asking you is, in what sense is tails the same as heads? And let's open the floor. So in what sense is the tails part of the coin the same, literally one, with the heads part of the coin? So let's use the coin to understand Jesus' phrase now, I and my father are one. So maybe we'll open the chat or you can just unmute. How can tails be heads? Oh, damn. Some of you have been to this lecture before. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> there are two sides of one coin. Yeah, but there's still two sides. How do you make two one? And Anisha nails it. You know what's funny? Every time I ask these questions, Anisha is like the first answer there. And it's always like the answer. Like last time I was like, what's common to all existing things? Anisha immediately types existence. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Close the floor. Yes, it's true. No, no, I'm happy you do it, Anisha. It's, it's wonderful. It's true. What makes the heads and tails the same is the very substance of the coin. This idea is profound. Like, oh, you never thought that there was a third thing. I mean, there's heads and there's tails. And in fact, I even phrased my question dualistically. Most of you won't even think, I, I don't know, I'm assuming this, but a lot of us generally don't even think about what the coin is made of. We're just like, yeah, heads or tails. We see dualistically. But here, the very substance out of which the two sides are made. I can of myself answer nothing, Anisha says. Now you're getting it. <laughs> so there you go. The substance of the coin itself is what unites heads and tails. You can think of the Holy Ghost in this way. The word that was with God. The word that was God. So this word, the Amen or Aum or that Pranava Shabda, that primordial vibration called the word is the Holy Ghost. And it's not different from Christ. And it's not different from God. So now... You're coming to a non-duality, see? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's all one. The non-dual Christ. So, having done all of this, we're going to kind of slow down now and use what we've learned thus far to make sense of the Christ's message. And there are a few lines in scripture that I want to look at. The first is, deny thyself. The second is, if thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be filled with light. Um... And these, I think, are the two most profound lines uh, for me. And we're going to look at how they relate to what we've learned thus far in Vedanta. Okay, so this is the most important part of the lecture. Um, 
Fireworks aside, let's get to the heart of it. The heart of the teaching. There's a very real possibility that by the end of this teaching, many of us will quite literally be free. Free of what, you ask? Free of the tyranny of the body in terms of its appetites and pains. So notice we're a lot of us tyrannized by the body. Most of us, in fact, all of us. We feel the body and we feel it when it's hungry and thirsty. We feel it when it's lustful. We feel it when it's cold and in pain. And as such, we have been made slaves by the body. You know, if you say, oh, I'm free to do whatever I want today. Once a Swami from DC, DC said nicely, um, a visiting Swami from DC, he said to me, if I'm saying this, if I'm saying I'm free to do whatever I want, it's a paradox. Because if I want things, I'm not free. <laughs> because I'm a slave to my appetite. So if you think you're free, if you think you have a free day, watch yourself carefully. Are you really free? If anything, you're free to be a slave to your impulses. <laughs> so as long as you think you're yourself to be the body, you can never really be free. You can only be free to meet its appetites. And it's like a thing other than you. You don't want to chase tail at the club all day, but here you are doing it, asking for everyone's number. You know, uh, you don't want to be like stuffing the face or running here or there. And, and all these, these patterns seem to catch you because of the strength of the body and its impulses. So in that sense, we are bound. But even worse than the tyranny of the body is the tyranny of the mind. We have certain ideas about ourselves that bring us great distress. We have certain ideas about others and about the world. We just can't quite forgive certain people and we just can't quite get over our hang-ups and we feel afraid. We don't know what we're going to do next. There's a great anxiety or, or, or worry, like what will be in the future or what will become of me or how do I make my parents proud and isn't love conditional? Conditional upon me behaving in a certain way in the eyes of society and parents and myself, you know, and all these are thoughts. And... It's not so easy as saying, oh, they're not true. We can say that. We can read a few self-help books and go, yeah, 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 okay, they're not true. But we still feel them. We still feel their tyranny. They still subtly influence us from behind the scenes. They cause feeling states that are contracted and not at all pleasant. And so if you thought the body was a prison, then the mind is solitary confinement. <laughs> it's a straitjacket. It's very, very claustrophobic in here. And that's because we can't just stop thinking certain thoughts. Um... They come at us with force in, in bed, like we're lying there about to fall asleep and suddenly, you know that meme where the eyes open and you're like, and time to think about something crazy? That's how the mind is. So as long as you feel yourself to be a body in the mind, you are not free. Freedom is the name of the game. I mean, let's think about the analogs of freedom. Have you ever felt free in your life, like truly free? Like maybe even something mundane, like one day you realized suddenly your schedule cleared up. And you felt that sense of, oh, the day is mine again. And maybe you felt this wonderful sense of spaciousness, like, I'm free. Uh, before the body and mind came in to whip you around, you felt maybe for a moment, you know, that spaciousness. Or maybe during an asana class, you were practicing the poses of yoga, and suddenly during one particularly delicious down dog, or one particularly absorbed shirshasana, suddenly you felt light, almost immaterial. Like the body almost vanished or you were like flying or you were taking a guitar solo or riding a bike through a beautiful trail and you just, the body just went away. You were having so much fun. You were so absorbed that the body wasn't there anymore. And in fact, when you're having fun, you're so focused on something and the mind is gone. Like that flow state. 
you know, that feeling of freedom, of being free from the body and mind, of being free from the past, the baggage of yesterday, of being free from the burden of tomorrow. If you've ever tasted that freedom, that spaciousness, that expansive sense of, ah, that beauty, you'll know that that is the highest attainment in spiritual life. Not just in glimpses, not in stops and starts, but permanently, abidingly, to truly live in that state. That's what freedom means. And so that's what the Christ was interested in. Now, if you were truly free, can you imagine what you would do in your life? Wouldn't you just wander the world? The Buddha would say, (laughs) it's funny because these two travelers are doing that. They're just wandering the world and now they're crashing on the couch. (laughs) And they don't know where they're going to be tomorrow. (laughs) And they're just like birds, you know, flowing around this way or that. But if you were truly free, you know, wouldn't you simply, um, wouldn't you be very simple? Like, you wouldn't be chasing appetites. You would be so content in your freedom, so fulfilled, you know, full and filled that you could just kind of just be and and, and that would be enough for you. And not only that, another thing, if you were truly free, you would be so fulfilled that you would have to share it with others. When you're free, you're creative. Creativity follows freedom like fragrance follows flowers. If you think you're free, but you're just like a layabout doing nothing, you're not really free. I'm sorry. (laughs) Because if you're free, there should be inspiration. And inspiration flows forth in the form of teachings or cobbling shoes or craft or whatever it is that you do. Uh, The free person, the truly free person is tremendously active and productive. They're not like the Venice beach stoner who's not doing anything. They're actually more tyrannized. Their their wandering is not a wandering of freedom. It's a wandering of escapism, (laughs) of true slavery, actually. Because they're a slave to their own idea of themselves as wanderers. (laughs) And you know them because there are no fruits. You judge a tree by its fruits, you know. And those trees, sometimes they've withered away. (laughs) There's no juice, no creativity. And what it is to be free is to be creative. So notice, the truth will set you free. Once you have the truth, once you have that insight, it will set you free. Meaning it will uh, give you the simplicity of the Christ. Um, and it will give you the creativity, the power and the authority of the Christ. What you need is the truth. But the second point to make here is that the truth, as we stressed at the top of the lecture, is not a belief. It's not a concept. Again, the Christ says very carefully, I am the way, I am the life, and I am the truth. Not I know the truth. Not I believe in the truth. Not um, I wrote a book on the truth. No, no, no. I am the truth, the living truth. So here, truth is not a thought. It's not a concept. Truth is something other than the thoughts, concepts, and symbols we have for it. Truth is the moon. The thoughts, concepts are the fingers pointing to the moon, right? So truth is a lived experience. Now, what it is to know something as true is to feel the truth of it in your own being, to resonate with it, to use a phrase, you know, to vibe with it, so to speak. So that's what you need. All you need is truth. And another way of saying this is all you need is an insight. So here's where we become Vedantic with it. So the way Vedanta works is as follows. You think yourself to be this body and this mind. You think this world appears this way and you mistake the appearance for the reality. Just because a stick appears bent in the water doesn't mean that it's bent. No amount of mirage water will wet the sands of the desert or slake your thirst. But believing the mirage to be an oasis, therein lies your bondage. So, your bondage is not an actual bondage. You're not actually trapped anywhere. Your bondage is one of perception. Your bondage is one of error. Your bondage is actually a lack of insight, nothing else. It's not a lack of practice. You don't have to heal. You don't have to grow. Um, Because what needs to heal? The body needs to heal. 
What needs to grow? The mind needs to grow. But if we take the axe to the root and show you that you are not the body and the mind, wherefore didst thou need to heal? <laughs> what needed to grow? You're trying to grow a mirage. You're trying to straighten a bent stick that is itself already straight. All that's left to do is to recognize what you already are. The thing that you are seeking, Rumi says, is seeking you. Another way of saying that is the thing that you are seeking is already you. You are what you want. <laughs> that's the fundamental insight of Vedanta. So Vedanta says, all you need to do is get the insight. And how do we do this? Three steps. The first is Shravana, listening. Shravana means to hear the teaching. So a master like the Christ would teach it to you. You know, he would tell you the way it is, really. Um, and actually, honestly, that should be enough. Just to hear once, you know, um, you're not the mind, you're not the body. The world is an appearance in you. Once you hear that, you should be done. You should be like, oh yeah, I thought I was the mind and body, but you're right. I'm the witness of those things. They come and go. You know, I am no more this body than I am that cup. And you can watch the dazzling show of Prakriti as Purusha. You're kind of free of it. So supposedly one insight should be enough, but we know that's not the case. Someone says to you, I'm not the mind, I'm not the body. You'll say, you are crazy. That's what you are. You are headed for a mental asylum. So the next stage is what we do together, which is Manana. Now Manana means to debate, to reason it out. So in our philosophy, we say you shouldn't just accept things on faith. Faith is important in the beginning. Like Shraddha, faith in Sanskrit, Shraddha uh, means more like open-mindedness, just a willing to, willingness to hear people out, not believe them blindly. Imagine uh, once a great Swami once said, a math teacher comes and writes an equation on the board, turns to you and says, do you understand? And you in response say, no, no, I don't, but I believe you. The math teacher would pull her hair out. She'd be like, I don't want you to believe me. I need you to understand. <laughs> so don't believe people. Understand. So manana is about understanding. So I say to you, you're not the body, you're not the mind. And you say, but ow, right? Because how can you not be the body and mind when you feel it? You feel yourself to be that. So manana is where we do the debate. And you argue. And the whole Upanishad is about this, like arguing. And then nididhyasana. Nididhyasana is living the truth, internalizing it. In nididhyasana, which can be translated as meditation, you contemplate the teaching every day. The next time you feel cold, you say, am I cold? Or am I the one to whom coldness is occurring? Like this, you do your philosophy and start to separate yourself from those things, from the experience. You are the experiencer, not the experience. And then you go even further. Nor are you even really the experiencer. You are the one in which experience, experiencer, and experiencing come and go. And that's how we do this work. We kind of contemplate it day in, day out, moment by moment. Even now, you should be doing it. You should be asking, who's speaking, who's hearing? There is no praise or blame when the praiser and praised, blamer and blamed are one and the same. You know, Vivekananda said that. But now you should feel this, like, who's speaking actually? Who's listening? Where is it all occurring? Is it someone out there speaking to you in here? Or is it all just in here? What is it internal to? To you, Anna? To you, Rory? To you, Nish? Or to you, the witness, the awareness in which Rory, Anna, Nish, um, song are but waves that come and go, you know? So even now you should be doing it. This process in the beginning, step one, is called neti neti, which is a kind of negation. You're, you're not able to really say what you are, but you can start by kind of figuring out what you're not. 
So this is via negativa in Latin or reductio ad absurdum. Not, not really. It's not really reductio ad absurdum. It's, it's more via negativa. So through negation, you arrive at a positive affirmation. Notice this is exactly what the Christ says. Uh, deny thyself. That's perhaps the teaching there. Deny thyself. Neti neti. Do neti neti. You know? And here's how we do it. Very simple. This is the Shravana part, right? So the first argument, Drig Drishya Viveka. This is the first way in which we might deny thyself, deny ourselves. So Fabricio, sorry, here we're going now into Vedanta. Excuse me. So very briefly, here is a thing. It's an object. It's, um, even before I say it's a cup or anything, what I'm noticing is that I'm seeing something. So this is a seen thing, you know, a Drishya. I am a drashta, a seer. So my eyes are seeing the cup. And I know this to be true. Unquestionably, indubitably, I know my eyes to be something other than the cup. Right? This is kind of obvious. My eyes are something other than the cup. I am not the cup. I feel myself to be the eyes looking at the cup. And so if you come and smash this cup, I won't feel like you're smashing me. You're smashing a possession, maybe. I might be a little worked up about it. I do kind of like this cup. Um, but I won't react like in existential dread. I, I don't lie awake at night thinking, is my cup okay? <laughs> I use it, I put it back in the shelf, and that's it. I don't think about it anymore. Because I know. I don't believe. I know I'm not the cup. I actually know it. Now, go further. I feel myself to be a body, but how can that be? I'm not the cup because the cup is a seen thing and I am the seer. Isn't the body too a seen thing? In other words, the cup is an experience. So the cup is out there. But how can the body be in here when the body like the cup is also an experience? It is nothing but a field of sensation. What is a body? You know, I'm not talking about what appears to you on a photo, in a photo, or in the mirror. I'm talking now to you in terms of your own experience. In fact, uh, to do this, you have to actually kind of close your eyes and turn off all the screens or whatever. Uh, don't look at a body. Feel from the inside what a body is. And you will quickly realize that the body is nothing but a flow of sensation. Now, what you call a body is maybe an ache in the knee, a taste in the mouth, a sound in the ear. To be embodied is to interact with sense objects, be in a realm of sensation. Those sensations are like the cup, mere experiences. They are the scene. You are the one to whom they occur. So you are the seer of the scene. So when I say I am not the cup, I really believe that. With the same conviction, I should be able to say naham deho. I am not the body. I am not the cup because the cup is the scene and I am the seer. But I am not the body because the body is the scene and I remain the seer. So why should I care if this body lives another hundred years or dies tomorrow? It's nothing more to me than this cup. Or at least that's what I should realize. I should realize this and be convinced of this. You know, insofar as I'm not convinced, there's work to do. Then let's go even deeper. So I'm not the body. Maybe I can say that. What about the mind? Aren't I Nish? Of course I'm Nish, right? No, but what is Nish? Nish, what is a mind? So a mind is like the body, a series of sensations. The mind is a series of sensations that we call thoughts. So thoughts are a particular kind of sensation. They're a specialized sensation. Ah, but notice, they are also seen. The sensation 
is seen, the, the thought is seen by me. So all thoughts, like the cup, are all just experiences that come and go. They are occurring to me, the witness, the seer. So how can I be my thoughts when I am the one looking at the thoughts? So you see what we've done? We've interiorized you by negating away all those things you thought were you. I am not the cup. I'm also not the body. So I give the body back to nature. Who said it's your body? As they say, uh, show me the papers. <laughs> Prove it. It's not your body. Who said it's your body? You're just pretending like it is. Imagine if, um, you know, my friends are staying with me here. Imagine if after three days of them crashing at our place, as you were about to leave the house, I said, wait, don't go. I own you. You say, what? And I would say to you, well, we've been together for some time now. I know a few things about you. You delight me and sometimes you piss me off all the time. I'm kidding. But like, <laughs> on that basis, I own you. Wouldn't that be ridiculous? Wouldn't that be ridiculous to say to my fellow human beings that I own you on the basis of knowing you, of being with you for some time, of you delighting me and irritating me? Like, that's what we do with our body though, no? I've been with it for some time. It irritates me. It delights me. How then, on that basis, I say it's mine. Ridiculous. So I'm no more my body than I own Yadap and, and, and Eli, you know. Um, we don't own the body, nor are we the body. That's, that's the insight here. So we're negating away the cup and we're negating away the body. So I've now exteriorized the body and then I've now exteriorized the mind. What is this if not deny thyself? Don't affirm that you are the body. If you're sad, don't say I am sad. Say, Ah, sadness is occurring. It's appearing to me. But I, I am no more sad than I am a body, than I am the cup. And you can actually practice this the next time you feel sad or the next time you feel pain. You can say, am I in pain? Or is this just another car driving by on the street? It's, huh? Awareness. Exactly, right? I sit in awareness and I watch these play of, on awareness, whatever. So this is the Christ, you know, denying himself, deny thyself. That self-abnegation is perhaps less about fasting and, and, and um, punishing oneself as it is about philosophical discrimination. He might be a jnani in this sense, in that he's saying, look closely at what you are. Know yourself to be spirit, pure spirit, and something other than this world of materiality. Deny thyself. Okay. Then there's another step to this, of course. Uh, in Advaita Vedanta, we go one more step and we say, now that you know you're not the body, mind, or world, what then is the body and mind and world? Is it some other thing out there? And of course, in Sankhya, that's what they say. I'm Purusha, that's Prakriti. That's out there, I'm over here. Um, I, I don't identify with that and thereby I am free. This is very hard though, you know. Once a Brahmachari, we were walking and uh, it was beautiful, sun, sun was setting, and we were discussing Advaita Vedanta and some of our um, feelings of like, oh, you know, it's not enough to just know this stuff. You know, we must really live it. And he was saying, yeah, you know, to really live this stuff, you see that woman over there walking the dog? And she was walking, she's like, we must relate to our own bodies as we're relating to that woman walking the dog. We don't feel her. Similarly, we shouldn't feel this, but we were feeling, we were feeling our feet on the pavement, you know? So if, if that's still true, if you're still feeling the body, this realization hasn't turned into a full kind of, kind of thing yet. And that's, of course, that's radical Advaita. It's high Advaita. Um, but you must be so convinced. I don't feel the cup, you know? In fact, Alex and I were talking about this. If I believe this is my grandmother's cup and that this cup defines me, then I might really feel it if you break it. I might actually feel pain because I've put a little bit of me in the cup. I've identified with it. I've identified with my body so much that I feel it. But once I take that identification away, 
it no longer tyrannizes me. Um, and then once I move away from the mind, I'm kind of chilling. Now here, Sankhya is content to just do this. Advaita goes one step further and it says, the body, mind, and world are not other than you. You don't have to dissociate like this. Instead, realize that the body, mind, and world are you. So the first step was to say they're not you. The second step is to say they are you in a far more intimate and radical way. It's almost like saying, I am not this body, nor am I this mind. I am all bodies and all minds. You know, so that final step, the great intimacy of finally reconciling the world as nothing other than an expression or emanation of me in the terms of Kashmiri Shaivism or an appearance or a mirage in me in terms of Advaita Vedanta is the next step. But we won't do that today. It's enough to say that deny thyself is perhaps the Christ teaching of neti neti. Now, the next teaching is more important and I think we should close our lecture with this teaching. And I would argue this is the central teaching. If thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be filled with light. Light awareness, right? Light is usually a metaphor for awareness, but also it kind of connotes an emotion state of freedom. Light is free. Light is the only constant in the universe. Everything else is relative to it, you know. Light can move without a medium. We don't need an ether for it in today's modern uh, conception of physics. It just flows anywhere it wants, unhindered, shines upon things, but it doesn't get tainted by the things that it shines upon. You know, it's ever free. It's ever luminous. It's self-luminous, effulgent, beautiful. It's the highest aspiration of all peoples everywhere. Perfect metaphor for awareness. Perfect metaphor for God. You know, in the Hebrew tradition, they call it Ein Sof Aur, limitless light, light without end. So, Thy whole, thy whole body shall be filled with light. If thine eye be single. Two ways of seeing this. The eye here, you might think of it as I, the ego. If, if you know yourself to be one, the non-dual Brahman, mm. then your whole body shall be filled with light. In other words, your life will be beautiful. You're enlightened if you realize this non-dual truth. That's one way. But I, I think that's kind of exegetical. And that's just me kind of superimposing. So I'm not going to say that's, that's the one. But if you look at another way, a more literal way, the eye literally means like his eye, right? If thine eye be single. So in this, this he's talking about vision. He's talking about vision. And he's talking about um, a singular vision. If thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be filled with light. You know, kind of embodied lightness or uh, kind of embodied enlightenment. So what does he mean by that? Could he really mean anything other than Raja Yoga? You see, deny thyself was jnana yoga, neti neti. Let thine eye be single is raja yoga. What is raja yoga? The science and art of meditation, which is nothing more than bringing the mind to a single point. Meditation is the activity wherein we concentrate the mind. And that's what, and this is of course from a yogic point of view. We're taking the mind with all of its disparate thoughts and first by stilling the body, second by stilling the breath, finally we bring the mind into one single-pointed uh, focus. Ekagrata, it's called in the Yoga Sutra. And that focus should be your uh, conception of the divine. You know, So it's easy to focus on something you love and if you love your personal chosen ideal, like if you love the Christ, um, it's easier for you to kind of stay with it to kind of keep your mind affixed or um, absorbed in that thing. And if you can do that, then you will be enlightened. So remember, in, in Sankhya, the goal is to realize your complete independence from nature. The fact that you are awareness, the witness, that you are something other than physicality and psychology, and thereby you are free from those two realms. The goal of yoga 
is to give you a series of practices to realize that rather lofty truth. It's not enough to say, I am not the mind, I am not the body. You must actually see that it's true, you know? Otherwise, you'll just be a charming dinner party guest with some cool things to say, but you won't actually be benefited by any of it. (laughs) To truly see a change in your life, you must experience this directly, as we stressed at the top of the lecture. To do that, there's yoga. What is yoga? It's not down dog. It comes later. That's from like 1200s, you know, after the Mughal invasion. Yoga, in its true sense, in its original conception, and in fact, it's more like yoga, yoga, yoga. Yoga is kind of new. Yoga. Yoga. Yeah, yoga. Um, Raja yoga is really about concentration, meditation. And in the text, Yoga Sutra, you will see. Um, and even in the Bhagavad Gita, very clearly it says, bring the mind to a single point and samadhi. You know? So samadhi is the goal of yoga. And samadhi shows you how to realize sankhya. So in samadhi, then you will actually feel yourself to be something other than the body and the mind then you will have that experience. So that's when you realize it. Nididhyasana. So meditation, you know, that's Raja Yoga. And meditation is the way to realize Advaita. So Fabricio actually said a beautiful thing the other day, and it triggered a whole series of insights for me, Fabricio. But he said, you shouldn't teach Hatha Yoga right away. Um, You should teach meditation because when people sit to meditate, they'll start to self-diagnose. So for instance, Fabricio has tightness in a certain part of the hip, you know? So when he sits Burmese style, he feels in the outer right hip a tightness, a lower back maybe. So he knows now he must go and do Hatha Yoga to address that. And so his Hatha Yoga practice is informed by his sitting practice, his meditation practice, you know? So it's almost like working backwards. You start with the highest thing and then you work backwards. And beautifully, Fabricio, maybe he'll elaborate later, he said, um, Meditation makes desikachars and, and ayengars of us all. Because then we become interested in hatha yoga. You know, thanks to sitting down and feeling pain in the bum, literally meditation can be a pain in the butt. But from feeling that, uh, then we go back to hatha yoga to address that. Now notice, we started our journey together with the very highest. Advaita Vedanta or even Kashmiri Shaivism is quite literally the last word. Uh, Thomas Byram, in his opening to the Ashtavakra Gita, a very radical non-dual text, says, Advaita Vedanta begins, or he says, the Ashtavakra begins where all, when all other faiths go silent. So when all other spiritual traditions close their chapter, the Ashtavakra begins. You know, not to privilege it over others. Remember, this is the Upanishad, so it's kind of common and universal. Um, and this radical text it starts at the very highest. And that's where we started. We started with, you are not the mind, you are not the body. You are pure awareness. Chidananda rupaha, shivoham, shivoham. I am of the nature consciousness and bliss. I am Shiva. I am the boundless field of awareness. Know me alone, Arjuna, to be the knower in all all beings. Know me to be the field in which things come, in which they have their being, into which they go. Um, That is the highest realization. But for most of us, it's just words. It's just a concept. It's an idea. It's not yet true. We, in fact, to our credit, we feel that it's true. We glimpse the truth of it. We know that it's true even now. But let's say the trickle down hasn't happened and it hasn't yet manifest in each moment. I stub our toe, it all goes out the window. (laughs) So we started at the top. Now, if Advaita hasn't worked, you know, if the philosophy, if Jnana Yoga hasn't yet had that transformative effect, then you go back to Raja Yoga. From Raja Yoga, you can go to Jnana Yoga. So here, from deny thyself, how do you do it? We'll go back to if thine eye be single. Um, 
thy whole body shall be filled with light. You will be enlightened if you can but focus, if you can bring your mind to a single point. Now, most of us are going to say, but I can't, I have ADD, or I'm particularly, uh, sorry, you're not special. Even Arjuna had that problem. In the Bhagavad Gita, he says clearly, your philosophy is good, Arjuna, but I'll never be able to realize it because my mind is too busy. Arjuna, the archer, you know, the India's foremost hero. Even he can't sit still. He didn't have an iPhone or anything, but even he's having some attention problems. So really, it's not your iPhone. It's, it's not you. It, it, it's everyone. The mind is just like that. You know, the mind is just really scattered. It's like a candle in a windy place, flickering this way and that. Your work now is to still the breath so the candle will stay firm. You know. That is Raja Yoga, and that's exactly what the Christ is asking us to do, to bring our eye, our gaze, our focus to a single point. If thine eye be but single, thy whole body shall be filled with light. So, Christ teaching Raja Yoga. But finally, how do you do all of this? You know, okay, deny thyself. Neti neti, Jnana Yoga is hard. As if Raja Yoga is easy. <laughs> Raja Yoga is hard. It's hard to focus on one thing. It's hard to bring the mind to a single point. So, what to do? The next step, oh, the step below that, not to say below, but prior to that, bhakti, bhakti yoga, love of the divine. It's love that brings your mind to a single point. Effortlessly, you get great powers of attention if you could but love. Remember when you fell in love with a person? All you could think about was them. You were a perfect raja yogi, no? You were perfect. Every day you were meditating, just thinking about them only. Everything you did was for them, buying this for them, going here for them, speaking for them. Uh, everything you did was for them. You gave yourself up completely. You denied yourself easily. Sacrifice came naturally because of love. Love gave you jnana. Love gave you raja. Nothing happens without love. And if this is true for limited love, love for objects and love for circumstances and love for people, all these things change. And when they change, your love will change too. So um, that's the problem with uh, loving things. The things come and go. God, the divine, that is changeless. That is the constant in the universe. So to love that is the highest love. And that was just the kind of love that the Christ came to role model for us. The Christ was love embodied. Not love for a person. Not love for circumstance. Not love for object. Not even love for bliss. But love for truth. Love for God. You know, it's the truest love there is. It's the most stable love, the deepest, most inclusive love. And he came to show us that love. He was truly a man in love. He was the greatest lover there ever was. And from that love, from that bhakti came perfect Raja and perfect Jnana. So if you really want to understand the message of the Christ, it's ultimately a message of bhakti, a message of devotion but not wimpy devotion, strong, true devotion, unflinching devotion. So remember, if we were to condense the Christ into two sentences, we could do it. The first would be, love thy God with all thy might. And the second would be, this is the harder one for most of us, love thy neighbor as thyself. You see, his message, central message is about love. And when he says, love thy neighbor as thyself, can't get any more non-dual than that, can you? <laughs> That's pretty radically non-dual. Literally see your neighbor as nothing other than you. Know me alone, Arjuna, to be the consciousness in all beings. Love thy neighbor as thyself. But that first one, love thy God with all of thy might. How do we do that? You know, you can't just look at someone and say, be hungry. They're not going to be hungry. If you're not hungry, no amount of saying be hungry is going to make you hungry, right? But you know what might do the trick? 
if I put into your hands the Bollywood Bites menu and I have you look at all the images there. It's a restaurant that we went to earlier today. Um, if I speak to you of food every day, if I describe food to you, if I show you videos of other people eating, you know, if I'm always talking about food around you, even when you're not hungry, you might suddenly become hungry. You see, it's exposure to food that creates in you hunger for food. So if you want to love the divine, if you want to cultivate a love for the infinite, you should be engaged day and night, moment for moment, in um, consuming media about the divine. So you should read books about the divine. Read only the best. You don't have a lot of time here. Only a few years left in this life, you know. Don't read any book. Read. Make sure you read the highest, the highest literature. Be very careful with reading. Because if you just fill your mind with thoughts, your eyes will never be single. <laughs> so if you read, you must only read the most enlightening and uplifting of things. In other words, read only the masters. It's up to you to decide who's a master and who's not. You'll know, don't worry. Read only that. Reread them. Read scripture. Every day you should be engaged in contemplating the highest and subtlest thoughts in human civilization. Read the lives of the great masters, like the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna or the collected works of St. John of the Cross or something about Ananda Mahima, whatever. Just read um, and then whet your appetite for spiritual life. Go to spiritual places like nature and various temples and all of that. Um, when you hang out with people, don't gossip, you know, don't talk about things that are easy to talk about. Talk about things that are uplifting to talk about. Discuss spirituality. Um, and failing that, discuss morality and meaning and self-help. I see Amanda's got the gospel there. One of the most powerful books out there. It's almost as if um, someone actually recorded what the Christ said. You'll see so many parallels in the gospel and in the uh, scripture of Christianity. Ramakrishna was like that. He really was the Christ. Having established that the Christ isn't a person, you can see why we would make such a claim. Now, um, every day, just cultivate a love for the infinite through exposure. Exposure therapy is the way to go. Marinate your mind in the divine through lectures, books, holy company. Fill your house with things that inspire you, that turn your mind towards God. Have murthis everywhere you look. You see a murthi. Murthi is Sanskrit for image or icon. If you've been to an Orthodox church, the walls are just like ceiling to wall, uh, floor to ceiling, just icons everywhere. Um, it's good because everywhere you look, a spiritual thought will come. So like this, your eye will become single. Single because you've cultivated a love. Every day you're just kind of exposing yourself to ennobling beautiful things. Move in the direction of what ennobles you, empowers you, strengthens you. And then slowly, 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 uh, spirituality will just be your life. Please make no mistake, until this happens, no real progress can happen. You must really generate a love for spiritual life. No, you're not going to get good at anything unless you love it. If you love bass guitar, you'll practice it every day. You'll be really good at it. But if you don't love bass guitar, um, no amount of practicing will really do it for you. Because you're never going to practice. And even if you're practicing, you're not really going to be focused. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's cute. Yeah, it's so cute. Uh, Laura is saying, my mom never thought uh, there would be photos of Hindu deities next to Christ. Yes, and our, and our Christmas tree. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know you've come a very long way in spiritual life when on your altar there are pictures of all the great saints. You know, Then you know you're going beyond mind and its narrow categories of caste and creed and actually feeling the truth that's there. So um, 
Step one is just to love the divine and to do that, just be exposed to the divine. Don't let your mind wander into pastures that are not good for it. In other words, always be engaged in some kind of contemplation, some kind of spiritual talk, some kind of spiritual activity. Just do this for a while and then you will create some skaras or habit patterns that are conducive to spiritual life. It won't be easy in the beginning because our natural tendencies, our natural inclinations, conditioned after many, many years of societal programming is to flow towards the world, is to want the power, money, wealth, pleasure. So in the beginning, it will feel kind of unnatural. But you're all lucky. You're all here, you know, um, kind of enduring this two-hour lecture. (laughs) You're all here because you love it. You love spirituality. These ideas resonate with you. They excite you. So cultivate that. You know, after this lecture, don't just default into something worldly. Go and do something spiritual. Maybe practice some restorative poses before bed. Practice a pranayam. Read a book that inspires you. Um, Be at the Q&A and talk to people and share your experiences. Keep your mind constantly engaged, immersed in that which is lofty. And then you'll find a natural love rises in you. You know that love is mature when someone says but a word like Christ or Shiva or Rama and that inspires you. Just one word is enough, as Ramakrishna would say, to have your hair stand on end and your entire body shiver in pleasure. Then you know your love has really developed. Once that love is there, meditation is easy. When you love someone, attention flows naturally towards that thing which you love. Yeah, exactly. Lord of Mara. So um, now, once your attention flows, then it will be easy. From Raja Yoga, it'll be easy to realize the truth and the truth will verily set you free. So once Jesus did something very beautiful, from his depth, you know, from his tremendous faith and his tremendous love of the divine. Also remember, he used to pray. He was literally God, right? Why is God praying? Isn't that weird? If you are God, and and truly that's the non-dual realization, aham brahmasmi, I am the divine, why then should you pray? Because reverence and prayer is the natural state of one who is intoxicated with self-realization. When you know yourself to be other than nish, like I am not nish, that's important, right? You the, say, I am not I. When you know yourself to be all things, you worship all things. You're not literally worshiping yourself. It's the Nish worshiping what I am, which is Nish naturally becoming a servant. You know, the servant's ego is there to pray. And so the Christ would go up into quiet places, seek solitude and pray. And as a result of his fervent prayer, of his deep meditation, because remember, prayer is meditation. After his deep meditation, naturally he had powers. Siddhis. Powers. And when he came down from the mountain, a leper approached him and he healed the leper. You know, he took away the leprosy. But then what did he say? He said to the leper, you'll see in Matthew, he said, don't tell anybody. Keep it to yourself. Can you imagine that? No egotism at all. He wanted to heal people for its own sake, not to aggrandize himself, but because his compassion demanded that he heal others. And he didn't teach the leper. He healed. He said, you know, don't give people fish. Teach them to fish. Um, But he also gave fish out of his own compassion. He wasn't like, you are a leper. You are not a mind, nor are you a body. I will teach you that you are awareness. Come and sit. No, the leper is not ready for that. The leper is suffering. You see, you're here because you have baseline happiness, right? You're all kind of, you're, you're okay. You're okay. You're not in the midst of suffering, at least not in the sense of the leper with leprosy. You know, that's why we teach. But if you were hungry, 
I should not be teaching you. Metaphysics to an empty stomach is an insult, Ramakrishna would say. India needs bread, not metaphysics. So if you were hungry, what would we do? Feed you, literally. But now you're here because hopefully you've all had dinner or lunch or wherever it is you are, and you're here because you're looking for a different kind of bread. Man cannot live by bread alone, but he does need bread, you know. Uh, man cannot live on bread alone, so if you live just for bread, you'll be quite sad, but need the bread, you know. So the leper came, he came for bread, literal, actual help. And the Christ, because he loves his neighbor as himself, was moved to heal him. But after healing him, and this is even more important, he said, don't tell anybody. But then he said, go to your temple, give thanks to your priest, follow your commandments, and pray to the Hebrew God. What? Basically, the Christ is saying, I'm here to make Jews better Jews. He's saying, I'm coming not to uh, break the law. I'm coming to uphold it. I'm coming to give you your religion back, God damn it. I'm not coming to teach you away from Judaism. I'm coming to show you that you've turned this beautiful faith, the faith of the Kabbalah, the faith of Moses and Abraham, of Sophia and of the Ein Sof Hour. You've turned this beautiful current of spirituality into a money-making thing. Not one stone will stand upon this temple. You know, um, because you've turned it into a temple for mammon, for greed, into a power structure. Exactly. So he came to tear down that power structure, to take the axe to the root so that people would be reunited with what was actually there. True Judaism, true spirituality. So who is the Christ? If he existed in history, he was a Jewish master. He was a rabbi. He was a master living in a Jewish context who, were, who was helping people become better Jews. Then, when um, the Christ's message went to the Gentiles, it was to help people become spiritual. In other words, the Christ didn't teach religion. He taught spirituality, and spirituality thrives in religion because religion is the structure, is the mythos, is the practice of spirituality. So when Vivekananda came to America, note this carefully, he said, I come not to turn people into Hindus. I've come to make Muslims better Muslims and Christians better Christians. This is the core message of Vedanta. We are here to teach religion, capital R. We're not here to teach Hinduism. Hinduism is a sect. Let it come and go. We care not for it. Um, we're here to teach true spirituality and it's as present in your faith as it is in any others. You know, it's as present in Christianity, in Islam. It is as present in Judaism, Zoroastrianism. In fact, Vivekananda defined Hindus as the kind of person who is as comfortable kneeling before the cross as they are praying in the mosque, as they are worshipping the fire of the Zoroastrians. Because a Hindu, a true Hindu, realizes that every expression of religion, from the crudest idol worship to the highest, most sublime, non-dual contemplation, are but vain attempts to grasp the ineffable. The divine is unlimited, so you cannot limit it to caste or creed. And as such, Jesus, after healing the leper, told him to go and practice his faith as he knew how to do. He didn't say, leave behind your uh, church. He didn't say, leave behind your commandments and leave behind your God. He said, go to your temple, go to your God, because that's a true God. You know, go to your priest and thank them. You know, how beautiful. So the final message is, if you are all to be teachers, and indeed you will be, because once the truth is there, you must roar it from the rooftops with the voice of thunder, with the voice of a lion, you know? Um, so you will go out, not out of this evangelical desire to convert people, but because people will come to you. You know, like bees coming to a flower, all of you now who have felt the truth in yourself, you have 
the euangelion. Angelion means message, you means good. So euangelion or evangelion means the good message or God spell, uh, the good news. So the gospel, the God spell, the euangelion is not a, f- it's not four scriptures, mind you. That's not the good news. The good news is the truth. The truth cannot be confined to any set of scriptures. It's as present in any scripture in the world as it is in a church, as it is in nature, as it is at a, as a bus stop, at a bus stop. It's truth for crying out loud. It's everywhere. It's unchanging. Um, and that being the case, when you deepen into it, when you deepen your love for spirit, lovers attract others. You know, As a lover, you will have a natural charm and charisma and others will come to you and they will see you as a teacher. They will need you to act for them in the role of a rabbi. And then you will teach, but teach from experience. And most importantly, teach them to be uh, better versions of what they already are. Don't take them away from what they're practicing. In fact, if you're with a Christian, show them what's beautiful in their religion. If you're with a Muslim, show them what's beautiful in their um, religion. And Anna will talk about it in Q&A. So make them better versions of whatever it is they're already flowing towards. Because ultimately you recognize, given the divine is ineffable, it appears to everyone in a certain way. Uh, An unlimited being has unlimited expressions. It appears in infinite ways, in infinite forms, to as many people um, as are willing to receive it. And that being the case, such is the good news. You are not your body, you are not the mind. You are the awareness in which the body and mind come and go. In that sense, you are free. How will you attain this? By bringing your mind to a single point through the practice of prayer and meditation. How will you pray and meditate? By daily remembering God and cultivating in you a sense of love for the divine. It all begins with love. And show me a greater lover than the Christ. And so in the name of Christ, Son of God, Son of David, the Master par excellence, the Bhakta, the great Jnani, in the name of that one who once walked the earth and who even now walks the golden paved pathways of your heart, I offer this lecture now, I offer this body and breath, I offer this moment and every moment that will come after. May I do everything only in the name of that which is most sacred. May I have no personal ambition. May I profit not monetarily or socially from any of these works. May I be taken care of by that same force that looks after the sparrows and the trees. Let me recognize that that force is none other than the joy of awareness. May I contemplate it daily. May I align my will to its will. May I see all of this as nothing other than God appearing to me. May I become worshipful. May I become reverent. In the name of the Christ, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in the name of Mary, may this be an offering. Shanti, 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 Hari Om Tatsat, Re Bhagavan Arpanamastu. Hail Mary, full of grace. Blessed art thou amongst women, the Lord is with thee. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. The Lord is with him. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us now and at the hours of our death. Amen. Mads, if you don't mind. In Latin, preferably. Of course.
Ave Maria gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tuan maliaribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis, pecutoribus nunc, et in hora mortis nastrae. Amen.